If your purse no longer bulges and you've lost your golden treasure, if at times you think you're lonely and have hungry grown for pleasure, don't sit by your hearth and grumble. Don't let mind and spirit harden. If it's thrills of joy you wish for, get to work and plant a garden. If it's drama that you sigh for, plant a garden and you'll get it. You will know the thrill of battle, fighting foes that will beset it. If you long for entertainment and for pageantry most glowing, plant a garden and this summer spend your time with green things growing. If it's comradeship you sight for, learn the fellowship of daisies. You will come to know your neighbor by the blossoms that he raises. If you'd get away from boredom and find new delights to look for, learn the joy of budding pansies which you've kept a special nook for. If you ever think of dying and you fear to wake tomorrow, plant a garden. It will cure you of your melancholy sorrow. Once you've learned to know peonies, petunias, and roses, you will find every morning some new happiness discloses. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Alexis and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season of Shosho, or fading heat. Spanning from August 23rd to September 7th, this season we observe that the heat of summer is finally beginning to recede. Grains are ripening, eagles are circling overhead, and we humans are making our harvest preparations. The season of fading heat is preceded by the mini-season the beginning of autumn, and followed by the mini-season white dew. Even though it may not yet feel like the heat is truly fading, traditionally this was the season when summer would begin to say its farewells. As in every season, there's lots to explore, so with the hope of cooler days ahead, let's head out. spirit of the summertime, bring back the roses to the dells, the swallow from her distant climb, the honeybee from drowsy cells. Bring back the friendship of the sun, the gilded evenings, calm and late, when merry children homeward run, and peeping stars bid lovers wait. Bring back the singing and the scent of meadowlands at dewy prime, Oh, bring back again my heart's content, thou spirit of the summertime. This mini-season, Fading Heat, feels for many of us to be the last hurrah of the summer season before we return to work, business, and school at the beginning of September. Many of us feel the last two lines of this poem by William Allingham. Oh, bring again my heart's content, thou spirit of summertime. 
Although we are still technically in summer according to the Gregorian calendar, this next mini-season is like a prolonged farewell. In episodes past, we've talked about the notion of summertime sadness, the kind of wistful feeling one gets around this time of year. We've also talked about the dog days of summer, a hot time of year guided by the constellation Sirius. Yet this episode, let's focus on another, more joyful term for this time of year, high summer. I think this conjures up a feeling of celebration, ripeness, and fulfillment that we all feel, even if it might be mixed with a bit of discomfort and wistfulness. Yes, just like there's high noon, the zenith, so too is there high summer. Around this time of year, farm stands are overflowing with produce, gardens are bursting with late displays of flowers, and our vegetable gardens are all ripening nicely. Yes, when we talk about the autumn harvest coming up, it's good to remember that the harvest happens not just in the fields, but in our gardens too. In fact, for many of us, our earliest gardening memories may have taken place in vegetable gardens. I think you and I were both lucky, Kit, in that we had access to vegetable gardens from an early age. We attended schools that had gardening as part of their outdoor education units. As we've talked about before, there is a lot one can learn from a garden. I don't know if you remember this, Alexis, but when we were children, the first time I ever tasted a tomato fresh off the vine was in your family's garden. And I seem to remember you didn't like it. <laughs> I guess I was expecting cherry tomatoes to be more like cherries. Ah, but I like them now. I didn't know yet how to appreciate it at the time, but the flavors and textures from garden fresh vegetables truly do make your own garden worth the hard work. I agree. There's nothing like fresh vegetables. And you can't get any fresher than growing your own. Gardening is a rewarding hobby in so many ways, and it can be done wherever you are, whether you have a whole yard for your garden plot or just a windowsill. If a full-on vegetable garden seems a little too daunting, an herb garden might be a good place to start. Herbs are often easy to grow and can yield a harvest in a matter of weeks. We have a little garden, a garden of our own, and every day we water there the seeds that we have sown. We love our little garden and tend it with such care. You will not find a face leaf or blighted blossom there. Before summer comes to an end in our gardens, it's time to harvest garlic. As their leaves become yellow, it's time to gather them up. And soon enough, when autumn arrives, it will be time to plant next year's crop. Garlic is one of those magical flowering plants that seems to have so many uses on top of a fascinating culinary history. Even before Louis Pasteur noted its antibacterial properties in 1858, garlic was understood to be good for healing. Garlic has been used in Chinese medicine for over 4,000 years. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans all used garlic for healing purposes. As our friend Hiro noted in Hiro's Corner from our Wintering Insects Awake episode in March 2021, the United States produces less than 1% of the world's garlic, while China produces more than 80%. Here in the United States, the average American consumes about two pounds of garlic per year. Two pounds might not seem like a lot. You may remember we learned in the summer solstice episode that the average American eats 12 pounds of ice cream in a year. 
But remember, with garlic, a little goes a long way. That's true. Another good thing to know about garlic is that there are hundreds of cultivars, some of which have wonderfully poetic names. To name just a few, Brown Tempest, Mother of Pearl, Whiskey Fire, Georgian Crystal, Carpathian, and Beekeeper's Sicilian. How charming. I like the name Carpathian for garlic. It reminds me of Dracula in those Carpathian mountains. That's right. We can't forget about garlic's anti-vampire properties of folklore. It must be garlic's unique pungency that warrants them off. Speaking of the pungency of garlic, culinary author Patience Gray writes, Pounding fragrant things, particularly garlic, basil, parsley, is a tremendous antidote to depression. Pounding these things produces an alteration in one's being, from sighing with fatigue to inhaling with pleasure. The cheering effects of herbs and alliums cannot be too often reiterated. Virgil's appetite was probably improved equally by pounding garlic as by eating it. Ah, now that you mention it, basil is coming into season now too. A wonderfully fragrant herb. Basil loves the warm weather of summer, and it's easy to grow, maybe even easier indoors, where it can be kept warm year-round. Basil is a delicious herb to cook with. And even if you don't need to use the leaves in any particular recipe right away, it's a good idea to pick the leaves from your garden's basil regularly to encourage growth. You can keep them in water for a few days, as you would with cut flowers, and their fragrance will fill your kitchen. That fragrance might be where basil gets its name from. Its Latin name translates to royal plant, and it's thought that because it was once used in royal perfumes. Interestingly, in the Victorian language of flowers, common basil meant hatred, while sweet basil meant best wishes. Hmm, an unexpectedly versatile plant. But common and sweet are just two varieties of basil. It's a diverse species with over 50 known cultivars. For herb gardening purposes, sweet basil is the most common, but you may also like to try planting purple basil for a nice color, or lemon basil, or even cinnamon basil for their unique flavor differences. John Keats wrote a poem that features a famous basil plant, a narrative poem called Isabella, or The Pot of Basil. This poem is too long to share in its entirety, but here's an excerpt. Isabella, in mourning, has watered the basil plant with her tears, and it grows particularly beautifully. And so she ever fed it with thin tears, whence thick and green and beautiful it grew, so that it smelt more balmy than its peers of basil tufts in Florence, for it drew nurture besides, and life from human fears, from the fast moldering head there shut from view, so that the jewel, safely casketed, came forth, and in perfumed leafets spread. Of course, this is just a romantic fabrication from Keats. Your basil does not need your sadness and tears to grow well. Indeed. In fact, taking care of that little basil plant may have actually helped poor Isabella feel happier. 
A recent Princeton study, published in Landscape and Urban Planning, showed that home gardening raised participants' emotional well-being more than almost any other regular activity. This study helps reinforce what most gardeners already knew. Gardening makes you happier. One person who knows a lot about the joy and rewards that a garden can bring is ethnobotanist John Forty, who has recently published his new book, The Heirloom Gardener, through Timber Press Workman Publishing. Not to gush, listeners, but we have been fans of John for a while now. It is such an honor to have him on the show. He has an incredibly inspiring and insightful Facebook page and years and years of gardening experience, trials, triumphs, and tribulations to share. He's also a kind and caring human being. Let's catch up with him from an interview we pre-recorded with him earlier this season. We're here with John Forty, the author of The Heirloom Gardener, Traditional Plants and Skills for the Modern World. Thank you for joining us, John. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so delighted to have you with us here today. On a personal note, Alexis and I have been following The Heirloom Gardener on Facebook and have enjoyed your seasonal and nature-related posts since almost the very beginning of our work on Season by Season. Now you've published a new book, also called The Heirloom Gardener, which celebrates gardening as a craft and shares the plants, lore, and traditional practices that link us with our environment and with each other. John, let's start with, how did you come to write this book, and can you share a bit about yourself and the journey? Sure. Well, I would say, um, you know, living in the modern world over the past few years, has felt like quite a challenge, I think, between p- pandemic and political strife. And when the publisher, uh, Timber Press, asked me to write a book on garden history, I really felt like it was a good time for me to try to use my voice to find some common ground and to look at all that gardening can teach to help us adapt to the changing world that we're living in and to bring some center to life and to an ailing planet. So I really, I came to write the book first because I was invited to, but also because, you know, they had asked me to write a book on garden history. And I didn't feel like these are times to write another book about the Olmsteads of the world. I really wanted to write a book about the ordinary people who've been gardening from their backyards for eons, really, and how they've been improving their life, lives through plants and the skills of gardening, how they created food and medicine and aesthetics, beauty from their backyards. So it came about because I was given that opportunity. And I really feel fortunate to have have this book come out into the world that we're in now as a sort of guidepost for gardeners who want to take it into a deeper place. As for me, I was, I guess, raised by a river, you know, the landscape I was raised in really created a sense of place in me that was pretty deep. And um, coming from a place in New England, also with a strong sense of history, beyond that river, I was very much aware of the native presence of the First Nations that had lived there before me, and also all the layers of immigrants that had come to settle there since. And so 
for me, really, as much as anything, I would say that led me into a life of careers, working in museums and public gardens that deepened that knowledge for me. One of the things I really loved about your book was its timeless quality. It touched on so many aspects of history and the environment, and you really got a sense of time and legacy and heritage. Thinking about this notion of time made me reflect on just how quick everything has become nowadays. And the idea of patience might not be something as prized in today's society. Could you share with our readers how the world we live in now influenced the evolution of this work? Well, I think clearly if anybody's looking closely at the world we're living in, we've done a pretty good job gutting it, you know, and um, everybody can taste the difference between a bloated winter strawberry or a, a hard red tomato that they gas to ripen and to make it look ripe uh, and be able to ship it thousands of miles across a country. You know, there, there's not, you know, the, the flavors, the beauty, the richness of taking something from seed to table carries its own reward. And, you know, sometimes I think we're living in a culture where attention spans have really grown short, <laughs> let's just say. And we take a lot in sound bites and we can see many ways that that, that, that has its impact. Um, but when we, again, learn simple skills like saving a seed, that means we can also connect from one year to the next and finding ways to do it ourselves from a local environment instead of a pre-grown tomato with flowers on it, I think helps teach patience. But as any kid in the school garden can tell you, it also is going to endear you to gardening forever. Uh, it really is a richer experience and a feeling of satisfaction that maybe I think a lot of Americans especially rediscovered during the pandemic. You know, right now we're seeing as many Americans gardening as we did during the Victory Garden of, era of World War II. Mm. And so many people found that really in a, you know, in a culture where you thought you could buy the best of everything, we were reminded that maybe I'm a pretty good cook at home, actually. And maybe that I never liked sitting that close to people in a restaurant or that was that loud. Or maybe there's a bigger pleasure in adding a couple of meals a week that are things that I grew from my backyard or just flowers on my table that I can enjoy that came from a garden I planted. I think you're touching on some things that we were thinking about when we started this podcast. Wanting to have a reconnection to nature, which can be so comforting during these difficult times. On that note, we wanted to ask you if you have any recommendations, whether in the home or in the garden or in your life, that you can share with listeners who do want to reconnect with gardening traditions. Well, certainly just the act of planting, planting anything can help rebuild um, a love of gardening. But I also think... When you pull some old tools out of a garden shed, suddenly when you explore with your hands in dirt, you get a chance to learn a process. And I think, you know, today more and more what we're learning in this, maybe I'd say post-consumer culture era that we're going into is that 
the next generations aren't looking to shop till they drop. They want meaningful experiences. Um, and in a garden, you get that. You get that deeply. And you get to learn skill sets, maybe skills that you carry through life or skills that you impart to kids that, um, you know, on average, studies are showing no than, fewer than 10 animals and plants in their backyard, but recognize over a thousand corporate logos. To me, this whole thing is about looking at ways to deepen our experience, but also mend a fractured earth. So what I'd say is don't start with what sounds like a grandiose uh, project, but start by planting a few seeds of the plants that you love most. If you love fennel, plant fennel. If you love um, bok choy, plant bok choy. If you just want to grow zinnias, it, these are all inroads. And especially, you know, if you can find some seeds that are fun to grow with kids, maybe some nasturtium that will teach a kid about a cool big seed that's easy to plant and an edible flower. Start with that. Start small, even if it's a window box or one tomato plant on your stoop uh, on a fire escape, uh, you know, in a city. It, it doesn't matter, but anything that connects you and that reminds you that what you do, do has an impact on pollinators and nutrition and air quality. You know, they're all parts of that. So again, just starting with what you love helps it from becoming something overwhelming. I think starting small is really key. Even in my fifth floor apartment window box, somehow the bees and the bugs find the flowers I have blooming. And I think it even attracts more birds somehow. And even though the space is small, you can really feel nature and time passing. I really love that about every little effort, you know, just, you know, tonight uh, realizing that a birdhouse gourd that I'd hollowed out has a new family of Carolina wrens in it that are. Did we, did we hear it a, a few minutes ago? I, I think, think you might well have. <laughs> uh, that's what made me think of it. I heard them. And, um, you know, there are those points of, engagement that just they bring joy it could be a dragonfly or a firefly or the bees that you're talking about but that's really a, the part of the book that i try to get across most is you know if we're looking to participate in meaningful change every one of our yards even when it's a, a window box like yours affords an opportunity to participate in meaningful change and, you know, we just do it to the degree that we can. But again, it's starting small and just doing what feels manageable so you can enjoy the process instead of regretting it. I suppose we should share with our listeners a little bit more about how this book is actually constructed. Could you share how this book is organized and just what kind of experience is it? How did you choose what you wanted to write about? There's so many great selections. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I I asked the publishers that the book be a beautiful book that reflects craftsmanship as well, because it's really in many ways about a new arts and crafts movement that I think is taking place. So it has a fine craft paper. It includes beautiful woodcuts from one of my favorite artists, Mary Azarian. And it's laid out with essays um, in alphabetic style. And to be honest, mostly that was because the publisher really 
they decide what the book will be called after it's done. And I couldn't conceive of how I could write a book in a different format without knowing what the title would be, to be honest. So essays really worked well for me in the almanac style. It's something you can hold up over your head while you're in bed reading and it's light, even though it's a hard cover. Um, it feels great in your hands. But I also think where so few of us have the luxury of time, I wanted to break it out into shorter essays. Each letter has uh, one or two or three essays that were shorter by nature so that while they were deeper pieces sometimes and sometimes lighter pieces, you could just choose to read about um, apple cart um, or the changes in cultures or heritage apples or distillation or local beer or gruit, um, organic gardening, and just find things that were of interest to you. The narrative that runs through it as a thread really is about each of us through what we do in our gardens, helping to create a positive change in the natural world, in the habitat we are part of, but also in the quality of our lives. You know, when we reconnect with the land, I feel like there's just this certain gratification that you don't find in endless hours on a computer as easily. And so it just tries to give inroads through those various essays. And I really do hope our listeners will pick up your book just so they can see what we are talking about. It really is a beautiful book to hold and of course to read. I enjoyed the whole thing. One challenge that we've faced on Season by Season is just choosing which seasonal aspects we want to talk about on every episode, because there really is just so much to choose from. I'm wondering if you ever had any difficulty in sort of narrowing down what you wanted to write about in your book, or how you went about choosing these various topics, because you cover quite a lot. Hmm. Well, I had some difficulty choosing, but I also, I felt like partly in using storytelling as a, a method to convey garden history and um, horticultural history uh, so that it wasn't just a dry, antiquated thing. It was about keeping it present in the moment. And so one of the things that always does that for me, whether it's on the Heirloom Gardener John Forty Heirloom, uh, I'm sorry, Facebook page, or in this book is tie things back to seasonality. Um, seasonality is one of the essays in there, but I speak to the markers in the seasons that we experienced, especially through Western culture in this instance, solstices and equinox, all of the holidays and holy days that used to weave in and out throughout the equinox and the solstice that were, were punctuated with plants that told stories of seasonality and cultural needs based on seasons. Speaking of seasonality uh, and seasons, is there a particular time of year you love the most? I imagine this might be a rather difficult question to answer. Well, I certainly love spring, but I think more than most gardeners or people in general, I love early spring best. Mm. Maybe back to close observation. There's a time before most people see that spring is here where my horticulturist's eye is attuned to notice 
emerging daylilies or angelica or, you know, plants that chives breaking through the ground, things that other people might look right past uh, because they're not the showiest. But I love watching spring break, hearing the change in bird song, uh, being able to gather the first few herbs of the season and turn them into uh, teas or into uh, add them to a dish. But really, I just see great hope in spring, and I love all that it will bring. And I'm glad I like it so much, because in my field of work, it has also grown to be my busiest time of year. So maybe that's another reason I really appreciate the early spring, before the rush of visitors to gardens arrive to see what it becomes that really, truly is even more beautiful. I understand exactly what you're saying about early spring. It's the anticipation and culmination that can actually be one of the most exciting parts of anything. And that transition from the dormant and awake from the season is also an important time for humans too. I feel living here on the East Coast, I really value that quiet and downtime of late winter, January and February. It's like we've been steadily running faster and faster until the holidays and New Year's. And now at last in late winter and early spring, there's a calm for us to steady ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I understand as well what you're saying about winter, because after you've gardened all season, there are books to be read and maybe some travels to be had and thoughts for the next season's gardens. And it's just a replenishing time. And I also find as I get older, I've come to appreciate that more as well. But then the part of me that loves that, the balmier days starting to come about and the longer days um, still carries me to early spring. Well, John, we've so enjoyed talking with you today. We've been looking forward to reading your book for a while, and having read it, we were both so excited to finally get to speak with its creator, and it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close? Well, again, I again would just note that given the times we're living in, I think one of the superpowers of gardeners is to find common ground. And I hope that this book also helps us get together across longer tables with people that we might not always think we agree with, get together with neighbors, share from our gardens, share seeds and produce. But really, this is a time for rebuilding in so many ways. And I like the garden as an analogy for that. And I hope this book can inspire some ways to do that uh, seasonally through this time of late summer or as we gather around tables in the seasons ahead. Um, but I, I hope that you will come to enjoy the book and, um, and that you'll share it with your friends as well. And really, thank you very much for having me here. John, thank you so much again for joining us today for this great discussion. Listeners, you can learn more about John Forty and his new book by checking out our website, seasonbyseason.org, or by searching for The Heirloom Gardener. Thank you again. We'll keep cheering on your book and hope your lessons on how to live in harmony with the earth take root in our society. Kit and I had been looking forward to speaking with John for quite some time now. We both enjoyed reading his book so much. 
Listeners, if you are interested in the Heirloom Gardener, there's information on our website, seasonbyseason.org. The nice thing about this book is that it also serves as a reference for any manner of gardening topics. And you feel both mindful and hopeful as you read it. And just like John said, the illustrations are wonderful. Alexis, you're an artist too. Did you have any illustrations you particularly liked? Hmm. Well, they're all great. But one of my favorite parts of the cover image is the wreath. Wreaths just make everything cheerful and welcoming. And the wreath on the cover of the book includes a sunflower. Surely one of the most cheerful and unassuming flowers out there. And they just inspire such whimsy, too. Here's a wonderful poem by Grace Hazard Conkling. Sunflowers, stop growing. If you touch the sky where those clouds are passing, like tufts of dandelion gone to seed, the sky will put you out. You know it is blue like the sea. Maybe it is wet, too. Your gold faces will be gone forever if you brush against that blue ever so softly. Sunflowers also play an important role, not in our gardens, but throughout the history and culture of Native Americans. The Hidasta used sunflower seeds to make cooking oil. The Hopi believed that there would be a large harvest if a number of sunflowers grown were also large. Sunflowers were used in Mexico and was known to treat chest pains. The Navajo used it in their sun's sand painting ceremonies. Different tribes also used sunflowers to create purple, black, and yellow dyes for decoration. The Zuni tribes used a sunflower poultice to draw venom from snake bites. Interesting. So many abundant uses of the sunflower. It makes you look at them a bit differently. On the other hand, one plant that often goes overlooked and ignored during this season is the bittersweet nightshade with its beautiful red berries. Ah, an interesting choice, Alexis, and maybe controversial. Bittersweet nightshade grows throughout the world and is a familiar sight for many. It almost looks like a little wild tomato vine. Although non-native to the United States, you'll now find it growing through fences and ditches and shady forests. I admit, I find the plant rather attractive with cheerful star-like flowers and cute red fairy-like fruit. But its friendly appearance does make it dangerous to curious children. Why? Because it is poisonous. Alas, yes, it's true that some may find the nightshade a dangerous pest. But still, I rather like it. And along with other climbers, it creates a dark and impenetrable shelter for a variety of animals. It may also be an important source of food for some animals too. Birds such as thrushes are immune to the poison of the berries and really do rely on them. As John Ruskin noted, the nightshades are in fact primroses with a curse upon them and a sign set in their petals by which the deadly and condemned flowers may always be known from the innocent ones. Therefore, listeners, do beware the nightshade and enjoy their beauty from afar. But you know, now that I think of it, Alexis, several vegetables in this season are of the nightshade family. Uh, it's true. I know tomatoes are in the nightshade family, but what else? 
Actually, potatoes, peppers, and eggplants are all in the family. Wow. Guess I suppose you're right. Their flowers do all rather look the same, don't they? But I'm glad you brought that up, Kit, because my discussion of nightshade-related plants was not quite done. I couldn't talk about high summer without waxing on a bit more about the tomato. More tomatoes? But didn't we just talk about them in our May episode? Well, in that episode, we talked about growing tomatoes, their varieties, and tomato flowers. But we did not talk about big, juicy, bursting with summer goodness eaten straight off the vine, hues of red, yellow, and orange wondrous tomatoes. Well, when you put it that way, Alexis, it brings to mind the quote by E. Lockhart. A tomato may be a fruit, but it is a singular fruit, a savory fruit, a fruit that has ambitions far beyond the ambitions of other fruits. E. Lockhart was right about that. Tomatoes are a particularly special fruity vegetable, so I say they deserve a few reprise performances as the seasons come and go. Here's a poem about tomatoes by Pablo Neruda, a friend of vegetable lovers everywhere. The street filled with tomatoes, midday, summer. Light is halved like a tomato. Its juice runs through the streets. In December, unabated, the tomato invades the kitchen. It enters at lunchtime, takes its ease on countertops, among glasses, butter dishes, blue salt cellars. It sheds its own light, benign majesty. Unfortunately, we must murder it. The knife sinks into living flesh, red, viscera, a cool sun, profound, inexhaustible, populates the salads of Chile. Happily, it is wed to the clear onion, and to celebrate the union, we pour oil, essential child of the olive, onto its halved hemispheres. Pepper adds its fragrance, salt its magnetism. It is the wedding of the day. Parsley hoists its flag, potatoes bubble vigorously. The aroma of the roast knocks at the door. It's time, come on, and on the table, at the midpoint of summer, the tomato, star of earth, recurrent and fertile star, displays its convolutions, its canals, its remarkable amplitude and abundance. No pit, no husk, no leaves or thorns, the tomato offers its gift of fiery color and cool completeness. I think this poem says everything about the tomato better than I could, so I shall leave it at that. All this talk of eating tomatoes also reminds me of an important practice of seed saving. John Forty writes about this in his book. Fortunately, seeds remember better than we do. 
Seed saving is an ancient garden craft that engages each of us as backyard preservationists, working to improve our lot with each passing season and every generation. We have long understood that if we saved the seed of our best produce, it would broaden biodiversity and continue to increase yield, disease resistance, and vigor. This time of year is a great time for saving seeds. In addition to vegetables and fruits, flowers are also setting seeds, and it's a good time to collect them before they fall to the ground. Many types of grass are setting seed right now too, goldening and browning, catching the last of that late summer light. Late summer grasses are an excellent kigo or seasonal word for this season. I think that many people grow ornamental grasses in their garden for just this purpose. The light, which begins to shift noticeably during this time of year, begins a show with the grass, which will last all autumn long. The golden light of late summer and fall set their breathy, airy forms aglow. Grasses are very architectural as well in a garden, with amazing seed heads or faded flowers which make excellent sources of food for the birds, or provide garden interest into autumn and even winter if you leave them uncut. Listeners, why not leave some of your grasses high this winter? Their forms can provide shelter from the cold and wet during the winter months for wildlife. Throughout the seasons, they'll catch snow, rain, and mist. Sights of light and wonder, which will keep you marveling straight through until next spring. Tall nettles cover up, as they have done, these many springs, the rusty harrow, the plow, long worn out, and the roller made of stone. Only the elm butt tops the nettles now. This corner of the farmyard I like most, as well as any bloom upon a flower. I like the dust on the nettles never lost, except to prove the sweetness of a shower. Another kigo that goes very well with autumn grasses are the aster flower. They grow wild throughout the United States, their blue starry forms constellating fields, meadows, and bordering the road. Pale on its stalk, the aster flower exhales its beauty to the night. The dry leaves scatter on the grass, brown flecks on bits of jade. The haze of autumn hides the leaves. Tonight shall be turned the hourglass of my life. Now all my thoughts going homewards in the distance are singing songs of you. Purple and gold, the aster flower is an image of my autumnal love. Its golden center is like a torch to kindle joy in the long still night. A torch of love with violet rays, grief at its enigmatic heart, frail, clustered flower of my dreams. You shall bloom tonight. You shall bloom tonight. As Fine Gardening says, asters are the grand finale to the perennial garden, displaying vibrant fall colors in shades of pink, purple, blue, and white. They're one of the last great feeding opportunities for bees, butterflies, and other pollinators. I have memories of their cheerful faces smiling up at me through the summer and fall season, whether I was driving on the road or walking through the forest. 
It isn't alone the asters in my garden. It is the butterflies gleaming like crowns of kings and queens. It isn't alone purple and blue on the edge of purple. It is what the sun does and the air moving clearly, the petals moving and the wings in my queer little garden. What a beautiful image that poem creates. And the butterflies gleaming remind me of another winged visitor to our gardens this season where the heat of summer is fading. Dragonflies. I wish I was a dragonfly. Hallelujah in sun gleam. Dragonflies are one of the oldest insect species substantially older than even the dinosaurs, with early fossils discovered as long as 325 million years ago. On that kind of timeline, human history is just a flit of the dragonfly's iridescent wings. So it can be little wonder that the dragonfly has captured the imaginations of humans for millennia. In Western folklore and mythology, the dragonfly represents transformation and rebirth. This association with transformation is due to the fact that dragonflies are born without wings. They undergo a metamorphosis wherein they shed a series of skins until adulthood, when they finally emerge from a last skin shedding to reveal a new winged body. That connection with transformation can really be felt in this surprisingly hopeful poem by Tennyson. Today I saw the dragonfly come from the wells where he did lie. An inner impulse rent the veil of his old husk. From head to tail came out clear plates of sapphire mail. He dried his wings like gauze they grew. Through crofts and pastures wet with dew, a living flash of light he flew. A living flash of light. I like that. We can really picture the dragonfly's energized movement, the hum of its tireless wings, the quickness of its aerial acrobatics. Here's another poem, this one by Eleanor Fargian. When the heat of summer made drowsy the land, a dragonfly came and sat on my hand. With its blue-jointed body and wings like spun glass, it lit on my fingers as though they were glass. Meanwhile, in Japan, the dragonfly is a symbol of victory due to its deft skills as a hunter. That's right. Dragonflies can be real allies to humans because they mercilessly hunt mosquitoes and other pests. Because dragonflies were thought to be fearless, many samurai wore armor adorned with dragonfly motifs in battle. This same fearlessness has also given dragonflies an association as protectors of children. Alert eyes, always open, dragonfly. In modern Japan, the word for dragonfly is tombo, which may come from the word tombo gaeri, or somersault. We can certainly see the dragonfly making aerial somersaults as it flies. The old word for dragonfly, now archaic, was akitsu. According to the Kojiki, Japan's oldest history book from around the year 700, Japan was once called Akitsushima, 
or Dragonfly Island. According to legend, the island of Japan was thought to resemble a dragonfly. We can certainly see how the dragonfly has become to be so celebrated in Japanese culture. Perhaps most importantly to the interests of this podcast is that the dragonfly is considered a harbinger of autumn. Yes, in Japan, as much as fireflies are celebrated in June, so too are dragonflies celebrated when September comes. The start of autumn is always decided by the red dragonfly. Over the flowing water, chasing its shadow, the dragonfly. Watching dragonflies flitting on the breeze is a peaceful sight in these late summer and early autumn days. My cats always get excited as they watch them from the window. They dream of chasing dragonflies through the garden. In Japan, they're a welcome sight, not just in gardens, but in rice paddies too. Since the standing water of rice paddies provides a perfect habitat for dragonflies, these insects have a close association with rice farming. The sight of dragonflies was a sign of a good rice harvest. That makes them a particularly good kigo for the end of this mini-season then. In the old almanac, the name for the last pentad of the fading heat mini-season was Grains Become Ripe, alluding to the upcoming rice harvest. Rice harvesting. That's another great kigo. In many places throughout Asia, it's already begun, depending on the latitude. But I'll save that topic for our next episode, when we'll be exploring the harvests of many kinds throughout the world. Listeners, we hope you tune in. Harvest and harvest home are something to look forward to indeed. Well, as this episode draws to a close, it seems suitable to conclude with none other than the zucchini, also known as the courgette, or summer squash. It is John Forty's final essay passage in The Heirloom Gardener, and indeed, seems a vegetable symbolic of this season. Perhaps nothing is more emblematic of the splendor and bounty of this season. The zucchini plant produces fruits and flowers in abundance all season long. Even with regular harvesting, many gardeners find it hard to keep up with all the gifts this humble plant has to give. John recounts this experience here. Zucchini and other summer squash represent the abundance to come, but they arrive at a time when we are still in disbelief that a little garden plot can yield so much. So much, in fact, that where I live, friends and neighbors regularly drop them off on each other's doorsteps, mailboxes, and unlocked cars. It can become something of a joke, but the surplus has been a plus as long as they have been grown. As Russ Parkin says in his book, How to Bake a Peach, Surely, zucchini must have been with us always. It is one of the most widely grown crops in the world, and every summer we come up with new ways to cook it, fighting to keep our heads above what seems to be a rising tide of squash. So, it may come as a surprise to learn that zucchini, which seems so ancient, is actually a relatively modern invention, probably dating back no earlier than the turn of the 20th century. Wow, who knew? It seems such an iconic vegetable of late summer, doesn't it? The shades of dark and light green and yellow seem such a staple of late August and early September vegetable patches. It's true. But what's also true is that zucchini grow fast, just like John said. 
Russ Parkin continues about this in his book. You can harvest zucchini at various stages of immaturity, but if left to their own devices, the zucchini can grow as big and hard-shelled as their pumpkin cousins. But whereas pumpkins develop dense, sweet flesh when fully grown, summer squashes get spongy and watery. I remember I've tried to eat overgrown zucchini once or twice. It was leathery and not very pleasant at all. Well, that reminds us that to everything, there is a season. Now is the season of zucchinis indeed. Just be sure to keep an eye on them. Zucchinis herald both the end of summer and the beginning of autumn to me. As we previously noted, the mini-season preceding this is the beginning of autumn, so despite the fading heat, autumn begins and we bid farewell to the summer season. Zucchini That Never Came to Be Written by Ryan Trump and Caroline Ideas Peel it, spiral it, bake it, fry it, mash it, caramelize it. Prepare it and plate it in ways only limited by imagination. The thrill of early summer sprouts with alpine-shaped leaves. Crisp orange blossoms hold endless possibilities. The promise of a continued harvest defiantly unending until winter dreams clash with the realities of limited imagination. Till it, compost it, mix it, weed it, aerate it, mulch it, prepare and pamper the earth with comfort and routine. Thrill of unexpected garden defeats and surprise harvest. Crisp spring sprouts cut short by unspoken twilight guest, the promise of orange blossoms dashed by wilted leaves. Uprooted hopes of zucchini that never came to be turned into a renewed thrill of midsummer sprouts and endless possibilities. Thank you for joining us during this season of Fading Heat. This season, some of the Kigo, or seasonal words we explored, were vegetable gardens, garlic, basil, sunflowers, nightshade, asters, grasses, tomatoes, dragonflies, and zucchini. Listeners, what are some other seasonal words you associate with this mini-season? Email your Kigo to our email address, seasonbyseasonpodcast at gmail.com or feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page. By the way, you can always listen to old episodes, revisit favorite poems, and take a look at visual examples of Kigo on our website, seasonbyseason.org, a special permanent home for our podcast and all things seasonal. On this episode, you heard poems and prose by Edgar Guest, William Allingham, Beatrix Potter, John Keats, John Forty, Grace Hazard Conkling, Pablo Neruda, Edward Thomas, John Gould Fletcher, Hilda Conkling, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Eleanor Farjon, Kobayashi Isa, Kaya Shirao, Chiojo, and Caroline Ideas. The poems featured in this podcast are in the public domain or used with permission from their creators. We would like to thank our poetry readers for this episode, Chris Whitaker, Mara Rosencrantz, Caroline Ideas, Porfirio Figueroa, Zachary Piper, Jason Berner, Dan Collier, Bernabe Ted Castellis, Irina Miles, Dominic Palamanti, and Nikki. 
we'd like to extend an extra special thanks once again to John Forte for joining us to discuss his new book, The Heirloom Gardener, available from Timber Press Workman Publishing. John, thank you so much again. We've learned so much from you. Listeners, you can find out more about John by following his Facebook page, The Heirloom Gardener, John Forte. If you are interested in ordering his book, we'll have details on our website, seasonbyseason.org. We will have our regular segment, Hiro's Corner, with Hiro Akisato and narrator Ed Von Atterkass, back again in our next episode. As we say goodbye to high summer, I am reminded of a quote by Henry David Thoreau. It is the glistening autumnal side of summer. I feel a cool vein in the breeze which braces my thoughts, and I pass with pleasure over sheltered and sunny portions of the sand where the summer's heat is undiminished and I realize what a friend I am losing. Summer is a friend we'll greet again next year. For now, let's look forward to our next episode, Autumn Equinox. See you in another season.